Welcome to the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast, the podcast where each week we take a passage of the Bible, we read it together, we discuss it, and we get the perspectives of three different peoples. Hi, guys. Hello. 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 We, we um, as always, we have Lachlan Miller, our expert, Morgan Carter, our newbie, and I'm Joshua Lee, the PK. How are you all going? Well, well. Got the final episode of... Uh, the book of Matthew. It's not the final episode of our podcast season because mm-hmm. next week we're doing the uh, Q&A episode. So if you've got any questions, send them in because we're going to try and attempt to answer all those questions in that in that episode. But we're looking at the final passages and the final chapter of Matthew this week. Crazy. We did it. We, we got to it. the end we've, of Matthew. We've done an entire <laughs> book. Well, we've almost done an entire book. I shouldn't, I, we're, don't jump ahead of ourselves. I'm sure the next hour will go <laughs> fine, Josh. <laughs> but how are we all, before we dive into it, how are we all doing? Well, I had a lovely weekend attending my cousin's wedding. Um, it was an outdoor wedding and my wife and I got a little bit burnt, mm. uh, a lot worse than me. So I'm a little bit tender on the bits of skin that was exposed, but she is very red. But apart from that, very well. Very well. Good, good. How are you, Morgan? Yeah, I'm good. I'm heading overseas in six days. So just getting excited and ready for that. That's exciting. I'm good. Nice. That's for the the Christmas holiday break? Yes, heading to England and Disneyland in Paris. Oh, lovely. That'll be fun. And that sort of puts a timestamp of when we're recording this. We're coming up to the year sort of uh, end of of the year for all of us. Mm. So feeling those um, sort of end of year feels. For me, I'm just just a bit tired. Came off a music video last last week, yesterday. So just it's been a um, bit of a slog of Working all week, having sort of half a day off and then going into into working on a music video, which I got promoted to cinematographer, which I wasn't expecting because the guy got sick. Um, so I was full steam into trying to do that. But it was it was quite fun. It was nice. really fun. Now I've got the song, the artist song stuck in my head. <laughs> <laughs> which is playing over and over in my head, but that's a, it's not too bad of a tune. So it's not, not, not a bad thing. Yeah, I was going to say, don't mention it unless they got a sponsor us. True. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, it's, uh, apparently it's not even, uh, I mean, the inside goss is that apparently it's not even released yet or mm. have been announced. So it's all, it's all very hush hush. All right. Well, let's get stuck into it. Lucky, what chapter or chapters are we doing this week? We are just doing chapter 28, wrapping up Matthew. Today's passage comes from the gospel of Matthew chapter 28. Hopefully you have read this chapter in preparation. If not, please pause now and read this chapter. After Jesus' burial, we find that in this final chapter of Matthew, Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. His resurrection confirms the validity of all he did and taught while on earth. And Jesus then calls on his disciples to make these things known throughout the earth. Now, typically when we get up to chapter 28, I would be saying, rejoice for he is risen. Mm. But we're not quite there yet. We, we haven't quite gotten there yet. Yeah, so last week we um, we saw the Last Supper, we saw the trial, and then we saw the death and crucifixion of Jesus. And from my point of view, all week I was asking so many questions, I was researching things, I was quite um, yeah shocked at some of the things that I learned. Um, so I'm super excited to see where we're going forward now. 
but that's what we did last week. And we really left it on a cliffhanger. We did. It was like, hey, we yeah. haven't quite finished chapter 27, but Jesus has just died and that is the end of our episode. And I think we all left last week feeling like just like a little bit sad. Yeah, it was very yeah. sort of somber, wasn't it? The the sort of the air. And I wonder if I wonder if anyone else sort of listening listening to it or watching uh, that episode also felt that same sort of somberness, that same sort of sad sadness because it it is kind of quite sad mm. and and the 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 trials mm. and the the pain and everything that Jesus went through, you know, leading up to it, and then his actual. Death and and then also like how you were saying last week, Morgan. All those imageries, uh, they get mm. um, shown of the uh, veil getting torn, earthquakes happening, the the land going dark. It's very um, it's very intense, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Was there any in, like any particular interesting research things that you found, Morgan? Yeah, I was just looking up um, different theories and things that people think might have happened, and the two robbers on the cross next to him. And I also had random questions come up like, who built the cross? Why is it a cross shape? How is it in the ground holding a human? Like I had so many questions just come up <laughs> during the week. <laughs> all, the, all the practical natures of, of it all. All the logistical questions. <laughs> <laughs> like how were the nails so strong to hold a human? Like just you name it. I had it all week just thinking about this episode. We, we keep saying if anyone else had similar reflections, whether it be similar to what Morgan had or anything, we'd love to hear about whatever reflections or questions or like anything that's that's come come up with it. So last week we didn't quite finish chapter 27. Mm. And so we have a few verses left of that to discuss, starting with the burial of Jesus. I just want to jump in straight away because Jesus is buried in a rich man's tomb, right? So mm. we talked about Joseph of Arimathea briefly last week, and he asked for Jesus's body and buries him in his own personal tomb. I want to read for us a section of Isaiah 53. And I think this is really important for the expectations of what the Messiah would do, but also like our theology of what the Messiah accomplished. Here's what Isaiah 53, 9 says. He, being the Messiah, was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. In this like two verses from Isaiah, we see that the coming Messiah was going to die, was going to be buried with the rich, which mm. would be unexpected. And then also that the whole reason that he died was to be a sin offering for everyone. And so while Matthew's gospel hasn't quite yet made it explicit and clear the purpose of Jesus' death, the background that Matthew is drawing on is so clear and so obvious of Jesus' death was an offering for sin. If Jesus wasn't buried in that particular tomb, like a, a rich man's tomb, as we're saying, where would have he been buried? Do we know where? So the normal custom for someone crucified is to literally throw them into a mass grave. Uh, so the fact that Jesus is buried with a rich, in a rich man's tomb after crucifixion is exceptional. Like mm. it is very against the norm because, like I said, crucified people were given no honours in death. Mm. Like they were public enemies to be publicly executed in that manner. And so they were not often given burials of any note. Yeah, I've never really thought of where Jesus was buried. I just always took it for granted. He was buried in in a tomb, giant boulder rolled in front of it, and no, no questions asked sort of thing. Which is important for the Easter story that we all know, mm. but it was a bit unusual. I just read it and I think of the logistics. Like, how did he get him to the tomb? 
Did he carry him? Did he? Yeah, I assume so. So John's Gospel says that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were the two people that took Jesus down from the cross and then buried him in a tomb. You know, maybe like yeah, like on a stretcher or a cart or something. You know, I'm sure they had some method mm. of doing that. Or they could have just literally both of them carried. But I'm, I'm, I'm more leaned towards a cart of some sort. I think Matthew has included this section on the burial of Jesus for two reasons. The first is to prove that Jesus was truly dead. And the second is at the very end of this section of him being buried. It talks about how Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. So Mm. I think making it really clear and really obvious that the location of the tomb was known is important for the rest of this story. I also Mm. think it's rough that one of the Marys is called the other Mary. I always feel sorry for yeah. it for that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> whenever we go through any, like, like, you know, you've got so many names that come up in the Bible, Mary being one of them, okay, so which Mary? Uh, I mean, to be fair, the other Mary is the mother of James, and this James is known as James the Lesser because you have James, the brother of Jesus, you have James, one of the apostles who's part of the inner circle, like, brother of John, one of Jesus' closest three friends. And then you have the other James, who is also one of the 12 (laughs) disciples, but he's very far down the list when you consider the other important Jameses in the New Testament. (laughs) Do you want to be James number one or number two? Well, he ended up number three, and he's one of the 12 disciples. Oh, no. What I find really surprising as we move into the next section is at this point, all of Jesus' disciples have fled, and yet it's the enemies of Jesus who remember his predictions that in three days he'll rise again. Mm. Like there's just something interesting about the fact that the Jewish leaders remembered Jesus's claims while his disciples have fled and abandoned him. I think we definitely would have spoken about it, but just to recap for me and kind of to go through, what was the after three days I'll rise? Where did he get the three days from? Earlier in the book of Matthew, Jesus said that he would give everyone the sign of Jonah. And the sign of Jonah was that he was going to be in the earth for three days in the same way that Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days. Yeah, that's right. And so we also talked about how three days was a Jewish idiom for a period of time that included three days. So Jesus is buried by Friday night. So that's day one. So even though it's only Mm -hmm. a part of the day, it counts. He was then in the tomb for all of Saturday. And then they discovered Mm -hmm. the empty tomb on the Sunday. So there's your three days. It's not three 24-hour periods, but it is parts of three days. And to be fair to the disciples... If I was that sort of maybe d- distraught about the entire situation, mm. maybe I wouldn't necessarily straight away remember what Jesus had had spoken about. And then the flip side with the Pharisees, if you were so sort of hellbent on, you know, destroying Jesus, you would be sort of like nitpicking at all these sort of like little details mm. Um, mm. of it all. But to to sort of what to what you're saying, Lockie, it is amazing that yes, it is the enemy that remembers this and not the other way around. Um, A fun little translation thing from this section is they ask Pilate for some guards and the literal translation is you have a guard. And so there's been long discussions amongst theologians whether when Pilate says you have a guard, it is him denying giving them a guard, being like you have your own guards, just use your own guards. Why do you Mm. want my Roman guards? Or whether he's like, here is your guard. You have these guards I'm giving to Mm. you. And so regardless, we know that there were guards at the tomb, but whether they were Jewish guards or Roman guards is actually a little bit up in the air. And they obviously like really believe the three-day things because where it says, therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, like there's no extra, it's till the third day. 
Yeah. So they obviously believe it's actually going to happen. Yeah, or they're just afraid of it. They're afraid mm. that disciples will steal the body and therefore this claims of a risen Messiah will start spreading and that will be worse for them than just having Jesus around. Would it disprove anything if he, if Jesus just so happened to rise on the fourth day? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, just, I'm just wondering. I'm just wondering because because they specifically said for only three days, like because like what you said, more. It's not for a week. Mm. It's like mm. you know, or, or indefinitely until we say stop guarding it. It's it's only for that three days. And it's like, well, Jesus could have risen fourth day, fifth day, or Jesus could have risen mm. on the third day and waited in the tomb for two days for the guards to leave. Yeah, and like, oh, now it's safe. <laughs> now it's safe to come out. So when we get into the next bit, the resurrection. So from 28, the first thing I just want to ask is the word Sabbath. Is this why we have church on a Sunday because of this day? Absolutely, actually. So traditionally, the Sabbath is a Saturday. Mm. Like that is whenever you read about the Sabbath in the Bible, it is the day of the week we call Saturday. But Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday. And so for Christians, since this moment, something about that Sunday became far more important to us. The day after the Sabbath is the reminder that Jesus is alive. And so we started celebrating that on a Sunday and started having church on a Sunday from this moment, even though Sunday is not the biblical Sabbath. I didn't know that. Yeah, no, I always I, thought Sunday was the Sabbath. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, Sunday was the Sabbath because that was the day that God rested when he made the... Mm-hmm. He made the no, okay, there you go. Yeah, well, as we read here, after the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Sunday was their first day of the week. Jesus rose from the dead on that Sunday after the Sabbath. Got to pay more attention to actually read. <laughs> <laughs> and this is where it gets inter- where it gets interesting comparing to the different gospels. This is very short mm. and not a lot of detail on on events compared to other gospels of of what of what happened um, post resurrection. Mm. Yeah, so Gospel of Luke and Gospel of John is sort of where you want to go if you want to see what happens post-resurrection. Gospel of Matthew has what we just read, which is really, really short. Gospel of Mark doesn't even have anything. No, because there's there's people running back into town. There's whole, I don't believe what's happening and needing physical proof, the joy and happiness of everyone, Mm. people weeping at his feet. Lots Lots of things happening here. We just get three sections. Yeah. Um, in my Bible, not even a full page. We see here the angel of the Lord appear for the first time since the very, very beginning of Matthew. So the very beginning of Matthew, the angel of the Lord appears to Mary and Joseph to explain what is going to happen and what's going on. And here again, the angel of the Lord appears at the very end of the gospel to explain to two of Jesus' disciples, these two women, what has happened and what's going on. And so the angel of the Lord is always this messenger of grand news and it's nice to see them reappear. And their description is quite interesting, right? Um, I know, Morgan, you had some interesting thoughts about the appearance of this angel and the majesty Mm. that they appear. Yeah, I think because we did have a discussion about all our different views on angels Mm. and this is like the widest snow lightning, like magical looking angel. That's what I imagine it as. Yeah, this fearsome looking being who is Mm. probably the one who caused the earthquake that opened the tomb, just sitting there ready to chat to these two women who have come to anoint Jesus' body. And and so fierce that the guards fainted. Yeah, I love the way the NIV puts that. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. (laughs) (laughs) Became like dead men. Very descriptive. (laughs) Like, like, what a lovely way to phrase it, Matthew. And it it is really nice that it is both the angel of the Lord that sort of 
sort of completing the circle, sort of like the wrapping up of of the story, having at the beginning and 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 the end. It's yeah, quite, it's a nice framing device. Yeah, it is. And what he has to tell these women is that Jesus is alive. Like that's how you started this episode, Josh. Is yeah. you want to get to chapter twenty-eight and you want to announce he is risen. He is risen, indeed. and you want everyone to respond. He is risen indeed. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And then he also tells them to go to Galilee, and that's where they should expect to see Jesus. Now it's interesting that it, it it's again it is still the two Marys. Mm. It's not any of the disciples. Like the, the the sorry, it's not any of the twelve. Yeah. Um, more specifically, it's the two Marys uh, that have come to to anoint his his body. It's it's no one else. And like before, it's the two Marys there. It's the two Marys. It's the two Marys now. And it's the two Marys that first see Jesus, which is often used as part of the historical case of the resurrection, because in first century Israel, women couldn't be witnesses. Like you had a few women who said something happened. You did not believe them in a legal sense. And so you can see how an early Christian writing this gospel where women weren't allowed to be witnesses would maybe want to replace them with males in this story or brush this story aside and really focus on one of the men seeing Jesus for the first time. And yet unashamedly, they say, hey, the first people Jesus appeared to was these two women. The first witnesses of the resurrection were women. Mm. And for in our culture, that's like, yeah, that's fine. Like, of course, women are allowed to be witnesses. And oh, that is normal and right and good. But for the people writing this gospel and the people first reading this gospel, that is actually quite a shocking thing to include. And they were the first to, one of the first to believe as well. Mm. And to, to believe in the in the resurrection, the first to be, uh, in a way, sort of the first to be Christians. Yeah. The first to worship the risen Lord Jesus. Mm. Like he appears before them and they they fall at his feet and clasp his feet, which is important from the, the physical side of he's not a ghost. They literally touched his feet. So he mm. has a physical body in this resurrected mm. state. But also they just they just worshipped him. Oh, definitely. And it says so much because you can't actually say that for the 12. Not all of them had the same response. Mm. It either took a lot longer for them to, to come around to the idea or, or not. But here we have these two Marys just instantly. Mm. They got it. Returning to the idea that the angel tells them that Jesus will meet them in Galilee, I think that's quite interesting in the way that Matthew has shaped his gospel. Because we know from both John and Luke that Jesus appears to the now 11 disciples, um, in Jerusalem over the next few days. And yet Matthew has chosen to not include those appearances and instead just focus on the one in Galilee. And I think the reason that he's done that is that Matthew is so focused on how Jesus was predicted in the Old Testament and how Jesus perfectly fulfills all of our Old Testament expectations. And in Isaiah 9, verse 1, it declares that out of this time of darkness, Galilee of the Gentiles is where the light will appear. And so Matthew is always creating this contrast between the light has appeared in Galilee. This is where Jesus is from. That is where the light has appeared. Jerusalem is this place of darkness where Jesus was crucified and killed and predicts will get destroyed in the next little while. But Galilee is always the place of light for Matthew in writing this gospel. And that is exactly what the Old Testament says about the coming Messiah. So clearly the guards then wake up and they rush to tell their commander at slash the Jewish leaders what had happened. Do you guys see any inconsistency with the excuse they come up with here? As in the guards' excuse? Yeah. Well, the, the excuse that is then publicized widely. That they're telling people he got stolen? Yeah. Is there anything 
Like, do you read that excuse and see any issues or flaws with it? The disciples weren't around, or they shouldn't have been let in if it was being guarded. Mm. On the back of what you're saying, Morgan, well, the guards did a bad job then. Mm. You know, then it, it, it's reflective. Like, it's interesting how the guards take the bribe because then it's reflective on their service. Mm. We actually know from other ancient sources that a guard who falls asleep during guard duty is put to death. Mm. So that's why they probably needed a big bribe to spread this story and why the Jewish leaders specifically say they will protect them if the story gets back to the governor. But the contradiction that I was alluding to is that their claim is the disciples came during the night and stole him while we were asleep. How do you know who stole Jesus if they were asleep? True. Like, they can't both be true. They're either asleep and the body was stolen and they woke up and went, ah, damn. Or they saw the disciples steal the body and do nothing about it. Like, I don't see how both of those things could be true. I would be so scared to go to my boss and be like, look, I fell asleep and he got out. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I would be so scared. (laughs) Now, hear me out. Don't be mad. (laughs) (laughs) Promise I'm not fired and I'll tell you something. <laughs> <laughs> mm. But it's it, it's it's kind of sad. They're still not believing Jesus here. Mm. There, there's no mm. sort of like coming around to the fact that what Jesus is, was saying, what Jesus was preaching, who Jesus is, is all true. Mm. There's no, oh, hang on. Yeah, maybe maybe we should uh, reconsider what we're all, we're all thinking here. It's no, the disciples definitely did it, and we're, they're still, we, you know, we're still heavily against all of all of this. Yeah, because the guards went to the religious leaders and said, "Like we saw an angel, we got scared, we fainted." Mm. Like that is the story you assume the guards told, because that is what happens to the guards. And yet, the religious leaders, as you just said, refuse to acknowledge even an angel appearing and knocking out their guards yeah. is enough mm-hmm. of a reason to believe Jesus. I feel like they've just overcommitted. They've so committed yeah. to Jesus not being the Messiah that at this point it's too late for them. And it's probably, you know, again, it's it, it probably stems from that. It's a threat on on their position. It's a mm. threat on their authority. It's, it's just a, it's a threat to, to them, all of this. And I think Matthew includes this section for us because of verse 15, which is that this story has been widely circulated amongst the Jews to this very day. So, like, this is probably a common objection to the resurrection that Matthew heard as he preached the gospel. Mm. And so we felt it was important to include where the origins of this lie came from. It just dawned on me when we get to the Great Commission in verse 16, it says the 11 disciples. Mm. I would say that is very specific. It is. Because we are missing one now. We are. But I think in the same way that saying the 11 disciples obviously and pointedly excludes Judas, Mm. it also obviously and pointedly includes Peter, who we just saw deny his Lord Jesus. As I said last episode, in the Gospel of John, we get the reconciliation of Peter and Jesus. We Mm. see Peter coming back round and being restored to that kind of leadership role in the disciples. But we don't see that in Matthew. But by saying the 11 disciples, we know that Peter's included. We know that these 11 men who followed Jesus for three years have now returned to the fold and while that isn't elaborated upon, mm. they're back. Yeah, all of, them, all of them are there. Some people think that this moment on top of this mountain is the same moment that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time. So while Matthew here only includes, he just says that the 11 disciples went to the mountain. He then says, some doubted. And so that is the potential that there was 
a bigger group of people there seeing what was going on because there were some doubters amongst this crowd seeing this Jesus. And you don't get the impression that it's the 11 disciples who are the doubters. Now, it could be. It could just be the 11 on top of this mountain with Jesus. But there are at least some commentators who think that this could have been part of a larger crowd going on here. It, it makes sense that like a, like a sort of this is a more of a crowd moment because Jesus usually preaches sort of more in these sort of locations where he's able to be seen by a lot of people. Yeah, and what he has to say is that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, which I think is a really nice throwback to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness via Satan, where Satan offers him all the kingdoms of the world, and yet Jesus has received more than that. He's received all kingdoms and all authority in all of heaven and all of earth. Like, Jesus has just claimed way more than he was being tempted with. So he wasn't given it prior to this? Mo- to this moment, or well, not necessarily to this moment, but prior to the crucifixion and his resurrection? When we read in Philippians chapter 2, we see like a mini gospel explanation. And this is what Paul has to say in Philippians 2 about your very question. Rather, he, Jesus, made himself nothing, but take the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every other name. So what we read in Paul's explanation of the gospel is that in his earthly ministry, Jesus humbled himself. He gave up the position of God. He had Mm. equality with God, but he gave it up as he did ministry here on earth. And as a result of his obedience and sacrifice on the cross, he is then exalted. Mm. So I think it is fair to say in answer to your question that he didn't have this authority before his resurrection. Yeah. And that was a choice. Like, he, yeah. as God had that authority, which he gave up, and then it's all given back to him because of his obedience. After the resurrection, how long was Jesus around? Is there a kind of a time frame that we know of? So beginning of the book of Acts, which is written by Luke, he says that Jesus appeared to them over the course of 40 days. And oh. so that sort of gives you a time frame of post-resurrection, Jesus is around and appearing to people and teaching and engaging with them for 40 days. So like more than a month's worth. Oh, wow. Any linkage between 40 days in the wilderness, 40 years of the Israelite people? Like, Because like 40 has been a significant number in, in the Bible. Yeah, I've never thought about that before, potentially. We mm. just know that 40 is a really good biblical number because it's constantly used over and over. Yeah. It's often used for exile or being away from things, which doesn't seem to quite sum up what Jesus is doing in this resurrection period. But it's a good observation that the number 40 keeps popping up. And one of the commands Jesus gives during these 40 days, because we know that this great commission happens during that period, Mm. is to go and baptize or to make disciples and baptize. We actually had a baptism service at church yesterday. And I really appreciated that as we baptize this young man, we literally said in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which is Jesus' exact command of how to do baptism here at the end of Matthew's gospel. And and the Great Commission is, you know, not only for the disciples then, but for us. It's mm. for us to be commissioned and to go out and make disciples of this earth. Yeah, yeah. In uh, Matthew chapter 10, we talked about how the mission was only for Israel, mm. but you can see now in the most obvious and clear way that it's now become universal, which means it applies to all people, all nations, all time. Just back to that idea quickly of being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Firstly, it's lovely to see the Trinity all listed out 
on equal terms effectively. Mm. But what is also fairly significant is that it is in the name singular of the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's not in the names. And like that's in the original Greek as well. And so that alone is kind of suggesting something going on here about it is the one name and that name is Father, Son, Spirit. Like there is a unity here of these three people being mentioned that we are to be baptized in the name of. So it's nice to end the gospel with solid Trinitarian theology. Yeah, all the same. In our very first episode, we chatted about how Jesus's name was going to be Emmanuel, which is God with us that mm. what he was going to encapture, encapsulate is this concept of God with us. And I said in our very first episode how exciting it was that the gospel began with this idea of God with us and ended with the idea of God with us. And so I re- mm. want to return to that now as we wrap up Matthew's gospel together, is that Jesus says, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Mm. Those are the last words of Matthew's gospel. Jesus's name is Emmanuel, God with us. And here, as we wrap up his gospel, he promises to always be with us. So that was a much shorter episode than we potentially wanted because we looked at just one chapter. So we thought we would take a few moments at the end of this episode to discuss the resurrection from more of a historical view rather than just a what Matthew has to say about it view. Um, And there's a reason that I think this is particularly important to do. Um, This is 1 Corinthians 15 verses 13 to 14. This is what Paul has to say. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Mm. So unless Jesus actually rose from the dead, the apostle Paul says that the Christian faith is literally useless. There is no value to the Christian faith if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And so I thought a nice way to continue discussing the ending of Matthew and the resurrection of Jesus is to actually talk about some history and Mm. talk about some historical thoughts and facts and theories so that we can be confident that Jesus rose from the dead. I think this is is an important conversation to have because I know for me, who's grown up with the faith, I've just always taken it for granted and never questioned any mm. of the like the leg- legitimacy or the historical nature of it, or I've just always accepted it in good faith of this is this is what happened, and I believe this is what happened, and I believe in the risen Jesus Christ, and and then just sort of move move on from there, never sort of taking the time to sort of maybe ponder these questions or or, or theories, or even just just taking the time to like it says in one Corinthian of going well. All of this is for nothing if Jesus didn't come back. Before we jump into some of the facts, Morgan, I'm just curious whether the historicity of Jesus or like historical evidence for him was ever a factor in your faith journey as you came to believe in Jesus as your Lord. Yeah, I think it was because I came into it quite like a bit older. I was brought up in it. I definitely had questions of legitimacy coming into it. And I was someone who asked those questions and wanted to know. I did an alpha course, which I found really helpful because they kind of talk about the history as well. Yeah, definitely had questions about this. Could I could I ask what solidified you go, um, sitting in the camp of this did happen versus this didn't happen? Um, I think just the undeniable feelings that I had kind of overcame it. And once I put myself wholeheartedly into it, I kind of reaped the benefits and believed it for myself. And you're always going to have people telling you the opposite, like atheists and stuff. 
But I think if you internally feel it and believe what you believe and read and learn and be hungry for knowledge, that's kind of what got me into it. I don't know. <laughs> it's interesting that you referenced that everyone's always going to have a different opinion. There'll be atheists who have different theories. Mm. Um, I thought to start this section off, I would present three sort of facts, just like historical facts that everyone agrees on, and then why I think the resurrection of Jesus is the best <laughs> explanation of these three facts. Um, but here's the three facts that I think everyone in the historical world agrees with. So fact number one is that Jesus was killed via crucifixion. And so we have the Jewish historian Josephus. We have the pagan philosopher Mara Ban Serapian. We have the Roman historian Tacitus. We also have a, a Jewish law document from the first century that also talks about Jesus's death via crucifixion. And then we have the nine different authors of the New Testament. And even if you consider their religious bias, they all universally, all of these different sources from a range of backgrounds, all talk about Jesus as a real historical figure and all talk about his crucifixion as his method of death. And so fact number one, Jesus was definitely killed via crucifixion. It's important to clarify it is through crucifixion. It's not through any other means of death. Because if there's one person that says, well, actually he was hung, mm. then mm. it then that's where it becomes all rocky. Yeah, and it's just really nice that every historical source from every religious background just agrees Jesus was crucified. And then we move on to fact number two, which is that Jesus' tomb was found empty shortly after his death. Now, you could disagree with how that happened, but even the biggest objectors to Christianity, so the Jews and the Romans in the first century, were so against Christianity, and they all conceded that the tomb was empty. And we can even just prove that the tomb was empty because all it would have taken is them going to the tomb of Jesus and parading his body around, and suddenly early Christianity, based on the idea of a risen saviour, would have collapsed. Mm. Like, literally all you needed was the body of Jesus and Christianity fails. And so for whatever reason, the tomb was empty. And that is fact number two. And finally, fact number three is that Jesus's followers claimed to see a risen Jesus. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 15 again. This is one of the earliest pieces of Christian scripture to ever be written. And this is what it says. Jesus appeared to Peter and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of our brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. In other words, go ask them, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, so Paul, also. And so the earliest Christian claims, which is undeniable just from reading the Bible, is that they saw the risen Jesus. Again, you can have different theories for why they think they saw the risen Jesus, but it is an undeniable historical fact that Jesus' followers claimed to have seen him alive. And so those are the three facts that everyone, atheist, Christian, whatever, agree that Jesus was killed via crucifixion, his tomb was empty, and that his followers claimed to have seen him alive. And so we need a historical theory that accounts for all three of those explanations. And so what I've done is I wrote a seminar on this a little while ago, and I've uh, handed out the seminar to Morgan and Josh here, and we're going to go through a few of the theories that I have come across as I've spent time thinking about this topic, some of the historical theories about how you can account for those three facts which are just historically undeniable. And these are theories that are not just from a Christian point of view, well, surely he just he rose from the dead. These are these are theories that are accounting for all possible theories. It's not just They're trying to, yeah. We ourselves are a tad bit biased in terms of we are Christian and we mm. we believe, but we are also trying to have a open mind in in talking about 
everyone's possible theory as well as what we also believe. Yeah. So the first option is the apparent death theory. Wondering if either Morgan or Josh, you want to quickly summarize what that theory might be about. Yeah, I found this one really interesting. So this one is someone called Carl Venturini thinks that he only fainted, woke up in the tomb, later escaped, and then convinced the disciples that he had risen from the dead. Which is wild. (laughs) Yeah, proper wild. (laughs) You know, for someone to be hanging, like, nailed to a cross, not even, sorry, we'll backtrack even further, whipped. Mm, Flayed to the bone. Flayed to the bone, clothes ripped, because Gaunt, they had to carry his own cross, had to go through all this torment and torture just to get up to the hill then nailed to the thing, and then also his side pierced. Yeah, yeah, spear was plunged into his side to confirm he wasn't just pretending to be dead. Yeah, yeah, to to confirm it, and then just to have fainted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and especially because the, the the strain that, you, that the body is put under when you're mm. just being held up by your arms as well, like, it's wild. That- it's proper wild. <laughs> and, like, you can understand this as a theory, and it... It accounts for our three facts, right? Mm. Jesus was crucified according to this theory. Jesus' tomb Mm. was found empty according to this theory. And Jesus' followers claim to have seen him alive, which is like this theory accounts for our three facts. It just, Mm. is it believable that the Romans stuffed up a crucifixion this badly? Because the Romans were good at their executions. And then what also I struggle to believe is that a man who has been this badly beaten and bloodied can then convince his disciples that he's the conqueror of death. Mm. Like, I just struggle to comprehend how you could see someone that badly destroyed and then they appear to you bleeding, barely alive, and then you go, wow, they are the grand, glorious conqueror of death. Mm. If he had fainted and then gone into the tomb from his injuries that he had suffered, three days is a long time to just try and hold out there. I, I mm. would imagine he would have died there in the tomb if he hadn't died on the cross. There's also a lot of people who had to make mistakes for this to happen. Mm. Like the people executing Jesus needed to make several mistakes and think he was dead. The people who buried Jesus needed to make several mistakes and think he was dead. You still have to explain how a bloody beaten man then moved a stone boulder out of the way to walk out of a tomb, which apparently was guarded. Like the Jews and Romans admit that there were guards at the tomb. Like there's just there's I think this is not reasonable in any conceivable way. And if the leading priests and the Pharisees were so sort of out to get Jesus, to to think that they would have missed anything mm. would have seemed a bit out of character because yep. they went through everything to try and kill him. Absolutely. And so, can we all safely say that we don't think this is a good theory for explaining Jesus's empty tomb? I think so. When I first read it, I thought, oh, yeah, that could actually be an option. But then after hearing that, no. Yeah, great. I'm, I'm glad we've brought you around to that <laughs> not being an option. Uh, but the second theory I want to discuss is the wrong tomb theory. So the wrong, the wrong tomb theory is that the, the disciples and everyone were so distraught, so distressed about uh, what had happened that they just went to the wrong tomb. Or they may have misheard or didn't quite know where the tomb was and so they just ended up coming to a wrong tomb that was open and empty Uh, and that's where they got the idea that Jesus had left and wasn't 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 there which is why I think it was so important in the gospel of Matthew that he specifically says the two Marys were there when Jesus was buried Mm. like I think Matthew is immediately trying to put to death a theory such as this I think there's also 
another huge flaw with this theory, and that is it's not just the disciples that lost the tomb of Jesus. Both the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders also lost the tomb of Jesus because they could have ended Christianity, as I already said, just by parading the body of Jesus around. So Mm. this involves thinking that every single person lost the tomb of Jesus. Mm. And again, as we said before, if the leading priests and the Pharisees were so hell-bent at properly like making sure Jesus didn't r- rise from the dead or just making sure she, he he was dead dead they would have known they would have known what tomb it was it also doesn't account for why the disciples started claiming to have seen a resurrected Jesus like sure maybe that is why the tomb was empty because they went to the wrong tomb but it still doesn't account for that fact number 3 that we talked about of why did they suddenly start preaching a resurrected Jesus That's a lot of people to get on board your theory based on going to the wrong tomb. Mm. Like we've got so many skeptics in the Bible. You've got Thomas the skeptic, doubting Thomas. He's quite famous. We've got the brother of Jesus, which is James, who we know all through the Gospels did not believe his brother was the Messiah. We have Saul of Tarsus, so the Apostle Paul, who was killing Christians until he met the risen Lord Jesus. Like you, you have all these people who are huge skeptics who claim to have seen Jesus alive. And I don't think they would have made that claim or just believed others saying, Mm. hey, he's alive because they went to the wrong tomb. So I think, again, that theory doesn't really account for enough. Like I think there's too many flaws and holes with that as a theory. And so I often that is combined with this next idea I want to present, which is the hallucination (laughs) theory. (laughs) This one just instantly I just think, how can all the disciples have the same hallucination? Yeah, you're a healthcare professional. You're probably actually someone who could speak to this a little bit. Like, how can you all have the same hallucination? Mm. <laughs> just doesn't doesn't add up. Yeah, absolutely. Like we we often see in movies like this idea of group hallucinations where everyone sees the same thing. Mm. But I found this mm. quote by clinical psychologist Gary Sibsey, and this is what he says. He says, "I've surveyed the professional literature." written by psychologists, psychiatrists, and other relevant healthcare professionals over the past two decades and have yet to find a single documented case of a group hallucination. Like, this is not a thing that happens. Hallucination happens in your own brain. Mm. And so how do you get, what, up to 500 eyewitnesses (laughs) claiming to see Jesus or sharing a hallucination over multiple appearances, multiple events and encounters? You talk to anyone that, has taken hallucinogenics and they will tell you that in that group scenario what they saw and what the other person saw are completely different Mm. i've heard stories Mm. of a person getting annoyed because they saw something very boring and these other two people (laughs) were apparently seeing lots of different things and this person was just seeing dots on the walls and so even even those that have have had hallucinations or been part of groups where they're experiencing things similar to what this theory is saying, they're seeing completely different things. Because again, hallucinations happen in the brain. And this theory, taken alone, doesn't account for an empty tomb. Again, the easiest way to destroy early Christianity, parade the body of Jesus around. And yet, again and again, that option is never, ever taken. Hallucinations don't account for an empty tomb. And so we move on to theory number four, which is literally the oldest excuse in the book because we just read about it in Matthew, which is that the disciples stole the body. Why would they do that? That that is the question, Morgan. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, that is the question. If they were so sort of like 
religious to the core. So like believers, so very like we believe this thing that's happening and we don't want it to go away, then to prove that he risen was just to to go to go steal it and continue this facade of it all. It does seem out of character for the disciples to do that. Because again, as we discussed before, they fled, they didn't stick around, there is lots of doubts. Mm. Um, there's no indication from what we read that they had any motivation to go do this. And people will die for something they believe is true. Like, mm. of course, if you believe something's true, you would potentially be prepared to die for it. But you won't die for something you know isn't true. This theory means that the people who started Christianity, these original 11 disciples, all died for their faith, knowing full well that it was a lie. Like, let me just quickly run through how some of these apostles died. The apostle Peter was crucified upside down in Rome for believing Jesus rose from the dead. The apostle Andrew, so that's Peter's brother, was crucified by the governor of Western Greece when Andrew refused to deny his faith in the resurrected Jesus. The apostle John was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching that Jesus rose from the dead. The apostle James, so that's John's brother, was killed by Herod in the first bout of persecution against the Christians in Acts 12. The apostle Thomas, who we've already talked about, doubted the resurrection, was stabbed with a spear while preaching about the resurrection of Jesus in India. James, so the brother of Jesus, James, was killed in Jerusalem. He was thrown off the Temple Mount by the Jews in Jerusalem for preaching that his brother rose from the dead. And then the Apostle Paul, who wrote a huge chunk of our Bible, was executed in Rome for believing that Jesus rose from the dead. And what you have to say is, if these disciples stole the body of Jesus and made this whole thing up, then all of them went to their deaths without breaking, declaring a lie. And look, I'm no psychologist, but people don't die for something they know isn't true. To die for something that isn't true, then you're doing it because you're gaining something out of it. Mm, there is usually yes. there is usually a power play involved. There is something that you gain from continuing this lie. But as we've cl clearly seen here, these disciples are dying for their for mm. their cause. They are not gaining anything. And to and in, in a in a world at that period of time where Jesus is getting crucified, they're more frightened to then going around saying that they, um, well, for them to still the body and then saying he he's risen in a in a period of time where they knew it was dangerous to do so for how afraid they were, as we saw, they they fled. They're not gaining anything out of it. There's no power in, in no there's no situation where there is a they gain a lot of power from it. Because all it takes is for one um, leading priest, Pharisees, to hear it and then they get put to death. Those four theories we've just chatted through are the four best alternative explanations to the resurrection I've heard. I'm sure there's like a thousand different theories out there, but I think all of them are weaker than those four alternative explanations. And so mm -hmm. after looking through those theories of how we account for a crucified Jesus, an empty tomb and claims of seeing a resurrection, I, I do land just on a purely historical sense in a resurrected Jesus. This is what Tom Wright has to say. The resurrection of Jesus does in fact provide a sufficient explanation for the empty tomb and the meetings with Jesus. 
Having examined all the other possible hypotheses I've read about anywhere in literature, I think it's also a necessary explanation. Like, I think it was important to end our study in the Gospel of Matthew with the resurrection of Jesus is true. It's true not just because we've read about it in Matthew, but it, it historically happened. It's what our faith is based on. It's what Matthew wholeheartedly believed. It's, how, it's what he wanted his readers to end the gospel with, is faith in a risen Jesus. And I think we here in 21st century Australia or anywhere else around the world, wherever you're listening from, we can also confidently believe in the resurrection we've just read about today. I think after reading Matthew, there's no way that I cannot believe mm. what I've read and learned. It's really, and it's really good to hear. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's it would be quite sad and heartbreaking if you know we went through this and at the end like look maybe it's not for me. <laughs> <laughs> We've lost Morgan. <laughs> you know, or any any of any three of us mm-hmm. sit, sitting here. I think what this has done, and I hope it's done for everyone else listening and watching. This has made us hungry, but reinforced our own faith. That is our grand hope. Yeah, out of this podcast. Yeah, and I think it's really healthy to have those questions because it just strengthens your faith when you realize what is real for you. Mm. So I think it's actually a healthy thing to question it. It is. It is. And mm. and we always go through these phases in, in our uh, faith journey of deconstructing our own faith and then reconstructing it back from, from it and then going through deconstruction, reconstruction. And as you're saying, Morgan, it's a very healthy thing to question and not always just take take for granted what what we're being given and um, just accepting mm. it as as faith value face value because um, we need to to own it ourselves um, if we just mm. take this all as face value we're not we're not taking that ownership over this we're not allowing to pour our own self into it or allowing the you know all this to to go into us if we just took this as face value then we're just going through the motions and and not not having that relationship that is required of Jesus. Yeah, and I think going off that, it's also really useful when someone who might be an atheist or might be questioning it or not believe comes to you and says, oh, but I think this, and you can let, oh, actually, I've questioned that as well, but you're wrong, but in a nice <laughs> way, like giving them some evidence or have a read of this and then we'll have a chat kind of thing. And sometimes people just want to hear that they are also struggling with this too. Yeah, and that it is okay to. I feel like a there is at times in this in our sort of Christian culture to never to do do not ever question any of this or to never mm. have any sort of differing differing theories, and so people can hide behind. I am actually struggling with this part. Well, guys, we've reached the end of Matthew. We, have. we did it. We did it. All of Matthew. Done. Wow. An entire book. Before we started recording this podcast, the Gospel of Matthew was the gospel I was least familiar with. And after doing this podcast, it is probably my favorite now. Mm. Like it, it is so well structured and put together and informative. I, I actually love what Matthew has done with this gospel. And I've so appreciated these last 13 weeks of recording. Mm that I've had the chance to dive into the book of Matthew and understand it far deeper than I've ever understood it before. You, you hear these stories, for me at least, you hear these stories so many, many times before. You hear different sermons on them. But to really sink your teeth into it and just get that 
backstory or the linkage. I'm always so impressed of how much it links to the Old Testament, how mm. much it all just flows into into each other and how we need every single book in this Bible together, not just a single single book. Yeah, I think for me, uh, it's the first actual book of the Bible I've finished right to the end because um, I'm someone who just chops and changes, Googles, what's good for this season, what's good for this. Um, but I've never actually finished a full book. So that was really cool and a bit of an achievement. Um, and I think there's just so many lessons and teachings that you can use in everyday life in Matthew. Um, and I just definitely learned so much. We've gotten to the end of the book of Matthew and we've completed the book of Matthew, but that is not the end of this season of the podcast. Next episode, we're doing one final episode of this season. That is our Q&A uh, episode. So again, put in your questions, uh, message them to us. Uh, there will be a form that um, we'll post on our socials uh, where you can submit your questions as well. And we're going to attempt to the best of our ability to answer all those questions there. In also saying that, this is not the end of our podcast. So next year in our second season, mm. we will be looking at one of the books in the Old Testament. So we're going to okay. go all the way back. As always, don't forget to keep up with our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and uh, TikTok. And if you like this uh, podcast, don't forget to leave uh, any sort of comments, any reviews. It really does help us out and helps us out in the algorithm. And you can listen to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Or if you want to watch it, you can watch us on YouTube. So just to, to close this episode of the podcast, let me just close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come here today, that we can delve into the book of Matthew, that we've been able to complete the book of Matthew. And we thank you for giving your son to us, for your son to walk this earth and to die for us and to be resurrected for us, Lord. We are forever grateful of, of this and for him taking away our sins, Lord. And we continue just to pray over everyone as they're listening and watching this, that they go out in their weeks filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with you, and that they've been able to gain a better understanding from the book of Matthew, Lord. And I pray for us that we've also been able to gain a better understanding, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen. 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 Lockie and Morgan, thank you for joining us and thank, thank you, you everyone for listening and watching and we will see everyone next week. Bye. 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 A Mustard Seed Creative Production.